Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and today we're going to talk to Brandon Carroll. Brandon is brand new at AWS. He just started recently as a developer advocate, and we are going to pick his brain on the security side of things, which has been Brandon's bailiwick for a very long time. He's got old school, nerd, traditional networking credentials, and now he's in the cloud world, deep in the cloud world, AWS net. And what did, what did you note from Brandon's conversation? I feel like there's a very real concern from some seasoned security network professionals that their skills are no longer useful, not applicable in the cloud. And uh, Brandon has some thoughts on that. And the answer won't surprise you that those skills are actually still very useful. Very useful. The challenge just being mapping your old school thoughts about infrastructure to what that looks like in the cloud and how to do that properly. So enjoy this conversation with Brandon Carroll, and then stay tuned at the end for a HashiCorp Tech Byte. We're going to be chatting with them about console Terraform Sync, which is super neat, I must admit. So stay tuned for that at the very end of this Day 2 Cloud episode. Up now is Brandon. Brandon Carroll, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. And man, you're you're kind of the new guy over there at AWS. What you, what you doing for the AWS folks? Oh, yeah. I'm as green as they get, I think. No, I've been... Uh... <laughs> It was around December. I've been there since early December, so I'm uh, getting my sea legs. Now I'm uh, I'm enjoying it a lot. I'm working with uh, builders, um, which is an interesting term, especially coming from my uh, networking background. But I'm working with builders to help with the cloud journey, right? And um, just to kind of set set what that means. Um, I think a lot of times when I talk about AWS, you think of like developers, we're developing some kind of app on AWS, so we're a developer. Yeah. Um, and builder is kind of a more general term. So, I mean, you could think of it as you're, you're building an app, you're building an architecture, you're building a, a business. Um, so a builder is really just a user, right? So I look at it that way. But uh, specifically, I'm focused on infrastructure security, that aspect of cloud and you know, it's interesting, like these days, mostly I think because of my background, I've been I've been just learning a lot, <laughs> just trying to take it all in. And believe me, there's a lot to learn. And I've really been trying to just draw some parallels between uh, what I had been doing since like late 90s, right? So, and, and today, right? So trying to figure out what um, that is, right? Um, how to take what I, what I've always done, just the firewalls, router switches, routing protocols, all that jazz. And now look at this cloud world and say, okay, what am I, what am I doing here? And what, what, how does it all come together? Yeah, well, yeah, you said, going. you said infrastructure security is the focus of your job. So, so scope that for us. What is infrastructure security in the, the cloud world and, and what isn't it? Yeah. So I think that there's going to be a lot of bleed over, especially just because of the nature of using cloud, right? But in my mind, when I think about infrastructure security, I, again, I just go back to what I had been doing for my whole career, right? Start out as a networking guy, get asked to throw a firewall up and, you know, protect the, the perimeter of our network. And, and all of a sudden now that's infrastructure security. I'm protecting the infrastructure. That's not all of it, right? It's not just firewalls. I mean, it's, it's things like VPN and encryption and, uh, switches and and port security and identity management and controlling all of that stuff. I, I think that for me is what infrastructure security is, which really does kind of carry over to cloud. A lot of those are just concepts that are just very much the same, even the terminology. But I think what it's not is 
when you get into the developer side of things. And then you start thinking about developing secure code and, mm. and all of that. That's not to me, infrastructure security. That's, you know, I'm, I don't do any of that. I've never picked that up in my career. It's never kind of been right there with what I'm doing. So it's sort of a separate topic in my opinion. Right. We had uh, Tanya Yanka on recently to talk about AppSec or application security. And it sounds like to a certain degree, the InfraSec part that you're talking about is the complement to what she includes in her AppSec definition. So the things that don't fall under her umbrella would then fall under yours. Yeah. Now, yeah. Um, in previous discussions, you were working that we had, you were working on a project and you were thinking about security roles and responsibilities. And you know, I think we had a pretty well-defined idea of that when it came to on-prem and the way we delivered it there. But obviously moving to the cloud and introducing uh, developers to infrastructure and those kinds of things, that changes that role matrix yeah. a, a little bit. Can, can you lead us through uh, your thinking and sort of set up the discussion around that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting, right? Because in my role, a developer advocate, I'm I'm trying to look at the developer, the builder, and figure out, okay, what what are you trying to do when you're when you're moving to cloud or when you're adopting cloud or when you're just getting started in cloud? What are you trying to do? And how can I, you know, fill any gaps that that might be there? And I think a lot of that came from me going through and learning and saying, okay, well, this didn't sort of make sense to me because there's a gap here. Let me let me fill that gap. Um, and so as I as I start looking at this, I, I thought, you know what? The first thing that's really hard for me as a networking security guy that's moving to cloud is, you know, there's over 200 services. <laughs> what are they for, <laughs> right? <laughs> what are they for? And how do they apply to what I do, what I need to do, mm -hmm. right? Where, where does my infrastructure security come into play with any of these services? So that was my thought is, okay, well, first off, let me just start putting something together that explains, you know, the, in my eyes, the different areas of network security tied to these services and which ones you would be touching and maybe which ones you won't or you won't, you won't see as often. Uh, and then once I paint that picture of what's there, then it's just a matter of now, how do I get, where's the best place to get started with these if it's day one and it's, hey, bring up an infrastructure and make sure that it's secure. And so that's really what my my goal was in, in this process. When you say make sure it's secure, I mean, if we're still thinking in terms of defense in depth, you're talking about there's a layer here that uh, an infrastructure-oriented person has some you know, dominion over, but that doesn't make it a secure application. It means there's been a layer uh, put in that is going to help things, but there's going to need to be, you know, more security up the stack, right? Yeah, absolutely, right? It's it's a layered approach. Um, you know, one of the things that we have, AWS defines a, a well-architected framework and, yeah. and, you know, there's a security pillar of it. And, you know, I know we see that a lot. You know, you can go to a lot of vendors and then they have the architectures and they show how security fits into it. But, you know, security is this this piece that really just, it, it's got, I don't know, I guess it's got a vertical where you can go kind of up the stack of all these security services, but it's also got a horizontal because it covers the whole gamut of everything, right? There's got to be security everywhere. 
And so, um, yeah, when you go into like defense in depth, yeah, I mean, this is, I guess we could look at where you're, where you're coming from in the network, because if, if you're the person that's asked, Hey, go implement a, a cloud solution for me and you go to AWS and you say, okay, I'm going to create an account and then I'm going to bring up something, you know, where do what do you do? Well, you know, I think most of the time, uh, or at least what I've seen is, okay, we're going to bring up an EC2 instance. We're going to bring up a server in the cloud. Right. Right. Okay. So here's an EC2 instance. It's a server. Well, I'm a network guy. I don't lock down servers. I don't, right. So what am I supposed to do with this? If that's the first step that I'm told to do when I'm experimenting with cloud and learning cloud is bring up this instance, what do I do from an infrastructure perspective? Whereas back in the day, you would have said, I'm going to put an ACL on a router, or I'm going to put up a firewall, and I'm going to filter packets going to and from this device. I'm going to build a DMZ maybe yeah. and, and yeah. do more filtering. And I'm going to do some logging and so on. Now it's like, okay, if I don't have those constructs because cloud, wh wh what do I do? How do I properly map? Is there, there's not a one-to-one -one mapping. Is there, Brandon? I wouldn't say one-to-one -one mapping, but like I said, a lot of those, those, those concepts and those ideas, they, they hold true, right? So if you said, I'm going to build a DMZ and uh, I'm going to, you know, put some ACLs and I'm going to, I'm going to do all this. If I started from scratch and I said, okay, I'm going to build out my network and I'm going to rack this gear and I'm going to connect all these switch ports and I'm going to end up routing traffic. I mean, this, there's still an architecture like that, like that logical architecture of traffic coming from the internet, making its way through my devices and to my server. Same concepts still apply, right? Traffic from the internet makes its way to my EC2 instance at some point. Mm -hmm. And there's layers in between there. And that could be firewall. It could be a web application firewall. It could be a network firewall, load balancers in the middle there. I mean, all that stuff is still there. It's just abstract. It's like lo logical, right? Because you're right. just clicking a button and spinning it up. So all those concepts still apply, I think, but they're, they just look different because it's, Oftentimes, well, I mean, just the nature of the cloud, you don't rack and stack it. You don't see the racks. You don't see the top rack switch that everything connects up to. You don't look at any of that stuff. You don't even hand a network drop to somebody and say, here, connect your server to this. You don't do that, <laughs> right? You're drawing lines. It's more like, you know, networking by Visio or, you know, <laughs> you know, so it makes things a little bit different. So if if you're an old timer and you're just set in that, infrastructure ways of building data centers and stuff. It, it can be a little bit uh, scary or overwhelming to say, okay, I got to take on all these new concepts. But when you, when you really boil it down, it's, it still looks the same. Right. And so there is the shared responsibility model that I know AWS brings up as well as uh, other cloud providers. And that's specifically what are you responsible for as the consumer of their service? And then what portions are they responsible for on their side? And the delineation seems to be, we'll handle the physical layer of things. Yeah. But then anything above that line, roughly, that's, that's your problem. Yeah, look at it. I look at it like this. Um, there's security of the cloud and security in the cloud. Okay. <laughs> hmm. Right. And, and you can look at those as being two different things. So, you know, securing the cloud, the, the, the architecture, the stuff that's all put together that you're going to be bringing these services up on, that's where the AWS responsibility is. But 
uh, security in the cloud. Once you start implementing your services, put your servers, your databases, you still have those same controls that you would have if you were to bring that database up on-prem. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that you would still be the one that would secure those things. Make sure that you're using the right, you know, your secrets and you're protecting them and all that type of stuff. Well, this was always kind of true on-prem, but I think cloud brought it to the fore is we used to have this mental model of the internet's untrusted. I don't, I don't trust that. I can't trust that traffic that's coming in from the internet. I need to plop that in a DMZ or something. I need to filter it. I need to be careful. But traffic that's coming from inside my data center, that's probably fine. You know, I'm not going to put a firewall between all these different segments of my network, or at least most organizations didn't. The cloud, you no longer can assume that all internet traffic is bad and everything that's coming from within your VPC, let's say, is good. Um, and it's harder to cover all the different ways that you could get traffic into one of your applications, especially if someone just you know stands up thing with a public IP address. So uh, how has that changed your thinking in terms of where the security controls need to be? Yeah, I, I think I still think the same. <laughs> I think I think block everything and start permitting what you what you want to allow. Uh, you know, don't don't just open things up wide. So I think that's that's why. You know, I, I'm just going to go back to when I was doing a lot of um, firewall implementations, and you would set up, you know, some NAT rules on a firewall, and you had machines on the inside and they can make outbound connections, but the default of that device was if it wasn't an established connection and it was external, you don't allow it back in, right? So, and if you did, then if you wanted inbound traffic, now you're talking about doing access lists and back when you're doing statics and conduits and whatever you had to do back then, right? So, I, I still look at it that way, right? So if you you have a, a VPC, like your network in the cloud, and you have subnets within that VPC, they're either going to be private subnets or public subnets. Mm -hmm. And if you start thinking that way, okay, public subnets, I'm assuming that public access is there. I'm going to see traffic from the outside. And then private subnets, not so much. Now there's a delineation between the two. And you can start thinking about what you can put in the middle of those when traffic needs to go from outside to the inside. Could it be a firewall? Could it be a, you know, a WAF with some load balancers and, and whatever the case may be, right? So you you still like a you still like a central device that is acting as a uh, a traffic cop between zones, um, which which doesn't mean. Uh, this would be in addition to like a zero trust philosophy, let's say, because that, that seems to be all the rage. We're going to be doing something that's zero trust. We're going to have some kind of filtering, admission controls, security posture evaluation on an ongoing basis, and then pushing rules on a maybe a host-by-host -host basis from some central policy. But there's still, um, in Brandon's mind, a, a place for for that traditional firewall, if you will, that is doing some kind of filtering from a central point, which I... Maybe there's a maybe a sidecar proxy is the the, the closest um, thing we have that would be analogous to it in a modern infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, like you talk about layers, right? So, I mean, you can go act. You can still have access lists. You can, and then you go out from an access list to a security group, and you know, expanding further out. 
if you're moving from a subnet to get outside, you have NAT gateways. Well, we we know what we have NAT gateways in yeah. traditional networking. <laughs> Got to have know. that state. So, yep. Yeah. Right. So, like I said, it 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 looks different because I think you know a lot of us were used to a command line interface and and um, you know we had our our nice. Visio diagrams of of a network, and we could easily track, you know, point A to point B, and hop by hop. We're a hop by hop. I mean, that's routing, right? Hop by hop by hop by hop, and and so we look at that, and it's easy to see where all these things are and where these controls are. So for me, when I look at that and how I've always thought about networking and securing my infrastructure, and then I go to cloud, and I see it, it looks different. Diagrams are done a little bit differently because it's almost like things are kind of nested. Um, mm-hmm inside one another. So in my mind, as a traditional networker, that doesn't easily translate. A, a layer of services that have been service chained magically through the cloud without you having to stitch it all together somehow or another. Yeah. Yeah. But once you start peeling that back and you just look at a layer and, and figure out how does this layer work, you know, go, if you break it down, get all the way down to a subnet level and uh, you know a, a mich- an, an instance that's deployed in a subnet and it has an address in that subnet and that it has a, a, a gateway in that subnet and that gateway has a, a routing table. I mean, it, it, it's all the same. It's not as scary as, uh, as a lot might think. Getting back to the conversation around roles and responsibilities, I, I want to focus in on that a little bit because yeah. typically when someone's asked to build something in the cloud, they might not be the networking team. It might be someone who's more on the IT ops server admin team, or it might just be a developer <laughs> that's like, oh, I, I have a credit card. I can swipe it and build it. Whose responsibility is it to secure, like starting from maybe the account level down to the VPC, down to the individual instance, who, whose responsibility is it to make sure that that stuff is being secured properly? And, and how do you even track that? That is a, that's the million dollar question, right? Who, who's, who owns this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's different depending on, I think the organization, right? I mean, you look at like gigantic organizations and they have teams that do this. And and there may be a little more clear division of who is responsible for certain things. You have a server team, you have a network team, you have a security team, InfoSec, whatever. That's a little bit more clear. One of the things I think is really interesting with cloud is how it, it's enabled so many people to take advantage of, of things that they would never have access to, to, to build their business on, right? Right. And so any developer, startup, you know, someone with a great idea can, like you said, swipe a credit card, can create an account and go. And so now it gets interesting because their background is probably going to dictate where they start. (laughs) Uh, If they're a developer, they're probably going to be more concerned or or more inclined to say, how am I going to get my server, my database, my application up up quickly and go? And all the, the, the plugs in between and all of the security in between, that's probably not their expertise. And so I think one of the things that's neat with cloud is these services that are based on best practices that, that do a lot of that securing for you 
to bring up an application quickly. That, that's pretty interesting, especially if you're that small developer, a startup company, uh, one that doesn't have a lot of resources. It makes it really easy to adopt cloud. But then there's still that, that kind of gap of what, what is there <laughs> and how do I know that it's secure? Well, if you're a startup um, with the developer who swiped a card and security is not your expertise, okay, there's a lot of complexity to uh, I am for, for one thing, let alone just fundamental security architecture. So yeah. do you bring in a consultant then? Is that the right thing to do? I, I think scale's probably going to be a factor in that decision, right? I mean, you can implement, like I think of like LightSail, <laughs> you can bring up, a WordPress site or, you know, your database, you, you can use LightSail to do that. And it's a couple of clicks and it builds that architecture out for you and it follows best practices. And that's great. And, and you can start your business on that. Do you need a, you know, contract somebody in to, to look at the underlying architecture in that case? No, probably not. Yeah, but it's always the thing of how much growth are you going to do? And do you have an infrastructure in place that you can grow into as opposed to one you're going to grow out of? And then it's a painful process to re-architect it so that it's actually something good. Right. And so that, that you know, kind of leads into the, um, the fact that, you know, there's one, there's a marketplace. So, you know, you can, you can make use of things in the marketplace that you might be comfortable with using already. Uh, there's a partner ecosystem, so you can make use of partners to to uh, to help with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it could be at the point, depending on your size and your growth, the projected growth, that that um, having somebody help out wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, like uh, clouds made a lot of these concepts easy to implement, but it doesn't mean that those concepts under the hood are easy to understand, right? I remember talking a long time ago, I mean, Ethan, maybe it was us in a, at, a, at a field day. I think the, the conversation came up a whole lot when we were starting to talk about automation and, and all of this stuff. Well, where does the network engineer go? The person that spent all these hours figuring out how these protocols work and all the timers and all of these things, <laughs> you know, knowing these things inside and out and how this protocol interacts with with this protocol and how they're on different devices, different vendor devices, how they interact differently with one another and all of that stuff. Where, what happens to all of that knowledge or, or where's the need for that knowledge once things start to become automated and once you can just click a button and boom, the network is deployed. And the way I see it, that knowledge is not wasted. That, that knowledge is, can still be you know, put to use and I think it's just size, right? <laughs> Having that knowledge of how all these protocols work probably isn't going to help if you're just, you know, buddies with an independent developer that's bringing up a, a single site and just using some of the managed services to do it. You're not going to be much help to him because it's not, you know, there's, it, it doesn't just fit together. But, you know, there, there, there is a space where professionals that have that knowledge are still necessary like you said, especially when there's growth involved, you think there's going to be growth, you need to build it right from the start. And you need somebody yeah. that's, that's got an understanding of how these things work together and, and where to start really, right? Identity management and the policies there and, you know, 
not, not just thinking about the infrastructure, right? But just gaining access to this stuff. Who gets access to it? How do we control that access? That type of stuff. Right. One of the things that cloud introduced that we didn't really have in on-prem was a common control plane where you were able to interact with all these different services, invoke them, delete them, make changes to them. And mm -hmm. so that makes security of that control plane incredibly important. Uh, and I, I wonder whose who's responsibility is it to make sure that that portion of things is secured properly? Yeah, the, the, the control plane portion specifically, who's responsible for that? Yeah, yeah, because if you don't lock lock down proper roles and permissions uh, in your yeah. in the IAM side of AWS, yeah. then someone with perm you didn't want to be able to edit your VPC could go and add a subnet, yeah. provision an elastic IP, you know, and you're like, hey, no, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think that the responsibility ultimately falls on the account owner right? The person that opens that account. Because when you, when you first create your account, you're creating a root user. Mm -hmm. And so I think from the very beginning, it's really important to look at those getting started documents, look at those best practices and, and follow them. I really follow them. I, I think for, for me, when I go into a lab, it's real easy to go, oh yeah, yeah. I normally would do that if this was a production network, but because I'm just messing around, I'm going to skip this step like MFA, right? Maybe I'm not going to do MFA just because, eh, you know, but if this is, if this is your organization yeah. account and you're the first person to, to, to create it and you're that root user, do those things. Even though it may seem like it's like this extra step that's going to make it next time I log in, I got to have a, an MFA token, and I got to put that in, that's going to, okay, yeah, but that's how you start the right way is, is you just follow those best practices. So I, I think that's where it falls, um, ultimately, yeah. is the account owner. One thing I've noticed, uh, especially over the years of working with cloud, is the defaults on a lot of the services, and even just the wizards when you're setting up an account or something like that, they have really tightened up the security around those things. And, you know, it used to be the old Microsoft approach. I mean, I hope Microsoft doesn't ding me for this, but it was like, leave everything open because we don't want anything to get in the way. And now it's more, no, we're going to be deliberate and make sure things are locked down so that you can't come back to us in six months and be like, well, you didn't secure my stuff right. Like, no, we made every effort for, for you to deploy it securely. And if you chose to make something insecure, you had to, do something. <laughs> mm -hmm. one, one of the things I think is really interesting, at least from, from the AWS perspective, is that they are, AWS is just obsessed with the customer. Mm -hmm. like it is at the foundation of everything we do, right? And so that being customer obsessed means that when it comes to your services, they're iterative. You're, you're taking that feedback from customers, what, what's working, that type of stuff. And then you're iterating on those services to make them better. And, you know, you look at, if you were getting emails on, you know, stuff that's being announced, you know, new, new services, new features, all, all these updates. I mean, it, it'll flood an inbox because it's constant iteration. 
making things better for the customer. And I think that's where those um, those defaults in the cloud, <laughs> you know, they they are getting better, and they and they continue to get better because the the customer is what's important, <laughs> right? I I don't think you know from a just this my my personal perspective um, as a cust- being a customer myself to anybody, I, I don't expect that uh, the whoever I'm I'm getting a service or something from, I, I can't expect them to do all of the work for me, right? right. I, I mean, there's certain things that I'm, I'm no, I know I'm going to have to be responsible for. And I mean, that, I mean, that's anything like buying a car, right? I go buy a car from a dealership and I expect that thing to work and have, have controls that are safe for me, but I don't expect them to drive the car for me. Well, not yet. And, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Again, I'm dating myself, right? If I, <laughs> if I were a little younger, I'd probably say, and I expect them to drive the car for me. But, you know, that's that's how I I see this, right? Is all of these mechanisms are put into place that are going to provide the, the best environment right now. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the other things you do, you got to be responsible for. Right, right. You get in the car. If you don't buckle your seatbelt, it's going to ding at you until you buckle your seatbelts. Uh, yeah. But all the airbags are there. All the other safety crumple zones and whatnot are there to help you in in case you do get into an accident. And in the same way, those same yeah. security features are available. Some of them yeah. you have to avail yourself of, but you'll have yeah. this something dinging in your ear going, hey, <laughs> yeah. you should turn yeah. that on. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, isn't that like a, a best practice? <laughs> Put your seatbelt right. on. The, con- the control's there, the seatbelt is there, and you even get a reminder with that thing dinging at you, follow best practices. You don't have to do it. Right. But usually works out a lot better when you do. Yeah, yeah. And and some of this knowledge and these defaults have really come from what you were kind of mentioning before, the people who have the deep knowledge, who, yeah. who, who become subject matter experts in whatever it is. That yeah. knowledge is now enshrined in how something is deployed or in a template that you would use. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to throw this idea out here and I just want to get your, your reaction or your thought to it um, because we're now able to enshrine and create and collect these templates. The need for as many subject matter experts on a particular subject has decreased. But I think at the same time, you made the point that so many new services exist that we actually need more SMEs than ever, but in a much more disparate field of topics. What 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 do you think about that idea? It sounds great when you put it that way, Ned. I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, um, all these all these um, experts in in whatever field they're an expert in, the thing that they have in common is that they have proven that they can figure things out, right? right? And 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 that's what it is to me, mm. right? So, yeah, um, mm. you can still, you still use that expertise. You spread it out, it doesn't matter, you know? I do like the way you put it though, Ned, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a place for everybody because we keep making more stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Brandon, if you were to give us three takeaways, things to remember from this conversation, what might those be? All right. I'd say the first takeaway is that if if you're that traditional 
networker, traditional network security person, if you're that expert, the, the skills that you have uh, are still very useful uh, today uh, to organizations that are moving to cloud, even to organizations that are already cloud, you know, early adopters that are continuing to, to adopt new services as they become available. Um, all of those, um, those fundamentals that you have, all that expertise that you have, that's still um, great to have. Don't ever discount that. That's one thing I would say. I think another thing is that, and it kind of goes with what we were just talking about, right? About being an expert is proving that you, you can, can figure things out. Uh, a great deal of your knowledge is transferable. So the, the concepts hmm. are, are very similar, um, even though they may look just, you know, glancing at a traditional network architecture versus a cloud network architecture may look a bit different. A lot of that will transfer over. You got to peel back the layers. And for what doesn't, if you're an expert, you've already proven that you can figure things out. Um, and then uh, the third thing I think is super cool, especially for people that are, are learning, that barrier to entry is not like it was when some of us got started in networking. You know, trying to figure out how am I going to get a hold of a couple of 2500s and 1900s and rack up a network here. And, you know, um, <laughs> it's not like that. I mean, it's not even like getting a license for, for an emulator, <laughs> you know, whatever. It's like, it's not that anymore. It's create an account and, you know, there's, there's free tier. Go, go yeah, play at the, play free, at the tier. free tier. And yeah. uh, man, just thinking if I had all that available to me, Back then, I mean, I, I know I spent a lot of time in front of a screen back then, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it just, it, it would have been amazing, right? The things you could learn when you have that um, available to you, it's there. So there's, there's just uh, not that barrier of entry anymore. You can pretty much do anything. Now, Brandon, you're a, you're a social person. You're out there on the internet. How can people follow you, contact you, read your blog, anything you want to pitch? Oh, yeah. So my blog, brandonjcarroll.com. I'm pretty much talking about learning there. That's where I talk about that type of stuff. Started putting some uh, more cloud-specific stuff on Medium. So you can poke around and find me there. Twitter, obviously, I'm still on Twitter. I, I joined Twitter in 2008. Mm -hmm. I think I looked. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I think me too. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah, at Brandon Carroll. LinkedIn is a good place as well. I, and uh, those are probably the easiest easiest ways to get a hold of me. Perfect, Brandon. Uh, thank you for spending time with us today. It's it's fun to catch you as you're just entering your AWS journey, uh, not as a user, but as, you know from the inside and to get your take on it and what's going on and watching you, uh, you know, map your mind from old school to this is how we do it in 2022. You know, it's, uh, it's been, yeah, it's been interesting to listen to your, listen to your take on all of this. So th again, thanks very much for spending time with us today. Virtual high fives to you out there for tuning in because you're awesome. If you have suggestions for future shows, guests you'd like us to interview, We'd love to hear all of those things. You can hit Ned and I up at Day2CloudShow on Twitter, or if you're not a Twitter person, go over to Ned's website, nedinthecloud.com. He's got a contact form there you can fill out and let us know that way. 
Now, don't hit skip on your podcast player yet. Up next is a Tech bite with HashiCorp, where we're going to discuss console Terraform Sync, some really intriguing infrastructure automation with CTS and a cool conversation. So stay tuned for that. Welcome to this sponsored Tech Byte from our fine friends over at HashiCorp. This is the second Tech Byte from HashiCorp around their console product. Last time, we learned about the many challenges that console is trying to solve for cloud practitioners like you. Today, we are going to narrow our focus to check out how console helps with network, infrastructure, automation, and dig into what's included in the enterprise version of console. Joining us today is Hari Sankaran from the console product team. Hari, welcome to the show. Last time we chatted with VanFan and got a good grounding in what console is and the challenges it's meant to solve. One challenge that we didn't get to elaborate on too much was infrastructure management and automation. Can you describe the challenge or multiple challenges behind managing infrastructure in a cloudy world? Absolutely. Uh, first off, Ned, Ethan, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Huge fans of this podcast. So I know it's no news to the audiences that cloud adoption is maturing. It's about day two, not just day zero one, which means our customers are moving more, you know, adopting at an industrial level for the cloud and they're scaling with a huge focus on business value through all this. Um, so what that means is that they need unified interfaces, control points, whether it be for security, app deployment, infrastructure as code, or networking. Um, I know we've talked about console platform as the control point for the service networking. It solves a lot of the zero trust and other important business challenges. What makes console unique is that it is the only service networking platform out there that also solves challenges related to day two infrastructure automation. So to answer your question more directly, Ned, I think the biggest challenge is achieving a repeatable deployment lifecycle through automation. Again, this is well solved for day zero one and is realized through infrastructure as code platforms. But day two is a little bit harder because when it comes to infrastructure automation, NetOps and security ops teams rely uh, mostly on ticket-based workflows to execute those updates and changes, uh, which means uh, it's manual and it's ripe for human-driven misconfigurations. It adds overhead and time. Uh, and so I think console Terraform Sync, which can we can dig deeper into, is uniquely able to solve uh, for this business challenge and the workflow. I'm laughing a little bit to myself because I think <laughs> I deployed this beautiful, pristine infrastructure for you people, and then you went and ruined it with all your manual processes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're absolutely right. So, Harry, I want to dive into what we mean by infrastructure here, because it can mean a lot of different things. Networking, storage, compute, et cetera. How does console help yeah. out with automating and securing my infrastructure, if you want to define that for us, then dive into it? Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. And it's specific to infrastructure automation. Console, together with Terraform, uh, is able to act on any type of infrastructure, whether it be compute or networking or security infrastructure that needs to adopt the same pace at which applications are changing, right? That's the cloud world that we all know of. So dynamic infrastructure needs dynamic provisioning, security, networking, console, and console Terraform Sync is able to solve for this. So for example, um, Gartner has stated that through 2023, firewall misconfigurations are projected to cause about 99% of the firewall breaches. So on the flip side, transitioning the operators from having to manage each requested change manually, uh, but moving that to overseeing CTS automated workflows 
actually bolters uh, firewall security. Uh, okay, so you said dynamic infrastructure. That's part of the tagline here. Um, yes. Does that mean uh, it's got to be cloudy infrastructure with you know an API and so on? Or if I'm still partly in a data center and maybe I've got some some of that icky metal, you know, that's doing, <laughs> doing the firewalling or the routing, could those play in a scheme like this as well? Yes, absolutely. I think console is unique in the sense that it is multi-platform. Uh, our binaries, the software can go into bare metals, VMs, or, uh, you know, any form of infrastructure that's automated, uh, you know, that's out there. And a console is able to find uh, services that exist in any of these platforms. And what's the, the reality is that enterprises are, you know, a lot of them are brownfields, right? Like they have on-prem the, you know, hybrid cloud is is a is. I know you're laughing because you know this. Well, you, you said some of them are brownfield. No, dude, they're all brownfield. All of Come them. On. All of them. Yeah, that, wrong, a bad choice of words there for sure. Um, you know, all of them are brownfield and hybrid, right? So there is a lot of the layer three, four equipment out there that is network security. Very important, fundamental piece to how enterprises operate, right? But console is absolutely able to, especially with Terraform provide infrastructure automation workflows for that as well. That sort of gets to the heart of a question I had in my back of my mind, which was, as far as I know, console is able to do service discovery and it can you know, help establish zero trust and all those kind of good things. I don't remember it actually being able to go out and manipulate endpoint devices and stuff. So it sounds like that's where Terraform comes into the equation. Yes, and I listened to your part, you know, your episode with Van, and you mentioned you heard about key value storage as well, and those are definitely what console has been uh, used for. Uh, but I think the first thing to your point, console does really well and is very well known also in the market is for the dynamic service discovery, right? Which is including a real time catalog of all your services, regardless of where this, where they exist. Ethan, to your point, their health and all of the important metrics. So you take this fundamental function, it lends itself to two very valuable use cases. One is a service networking service mesh that touches on zero trust requirements, et cetera. And secondly, you use the same service discovery uh, function to provide network infrastructure automation uh, that I can dig deeper into. At the heart of it, CTS is simply combining Terraform and console functionality to eliminate those manual ticket-based systems uh, that we talked about, whether it's on-prem or cloud. It's broken down into two parts. For day zero one, teams use Terraform. They can quickly deploy network devices, infrastructure, you know, consistently, and they can reproduce it. Once that's established, teams should manage day two automation tasks by integrating the console's uh, like dynamic catalog into like a Terraform workspace with the help of CTS. So if you think about it, when a change is recorded, from the application level in console's service catalog, CTS triggers a Terraform run automatically to automate the infrastructure, whether it is load balancers or firewalls or any other service-defined networking components. I can draw a parallel to some of the ways that Kubernetes works when you spin up a new service and a pod dies in the background. It it automatically knows about that and it's able to stop sending traffic to the dead pod. And when the new pod comes up to take its place, all right, I'm going to start sending traffic to that new pod. But that level of automation doesn't exist, generally speaking, out in, in the larger networking world. It, that's confined to the Kubernetes cluster. Uh, so CTS kind of gives you that same ability to a certain degree outside of the cluster. 
But what yeah. do customers need to adopt console Terraform Sync? That's a great question, actually. Also, it's very simple. As the name indicates, you will need console to do that real-time service discovery, and then you will need Terraform for the infrastructure as code. Um, you install one extra binary called CTS, uh, which brings them both together. So in, in a sense, console becomes your source of truth, if you will, right? It understands the health of all your services. And Terraform becomes that executor of all the changes to the infrastructure based on changes at the application layer. And for that to work, Terraform to update the infrastructure, obviously you will need a Terraform provider of which <laughs> we know there are thousands already. Uh, and so the only other piece that you may need to build is what's called a CTS module, which defines exactly what the CTS binary will monitor and execute, right? Even that we have plenty of those modules out there. In fact, if you go to Terraform registry and just search for NIA, it'll automatically pull up a lot of the ecosystem CTS modules that exist already from Cisco, AWS, Palo Alto, F5, and many others. And practitioners can also build their own CTS model. I've built one already, a few, and it's it's very easy to do. And I'll link some, uh, you know, provide some links on how, you know, practitioners can do that. Hari, is this sort of a self-contained pipeline for infrastructure as code? It feels like it's all been baked in here. It is. I think, you know, HashiCorp has that advantage because we can do the service discovery, service registry with console, and we can do infrastructure as code with Terraform. It was really bringing those two together. So it basically is all baked in. All right, I can get console and Terraform. There are free open source versions that are available to me. What about this CTS component we've been talking about? Is that also free and open source or is there a, a cost for that? No, it is also open source. It's another open source binary that you will download and install and you just provide access to your console and Terraform deployments and you can get up and running. So really no cost other than the infrastructure needed to run that binary. How about, okay, you guys got to stop giving all the stuff away. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining. I like using it, but yeah, you know, yeah. I imagine you want to get paid for something. Um, yeah. And I know that console does have an enterprise version. So maybe we can uh, switch tracks a little bit and talk about console enterprise. Cause I'm curious, what is included in console enterprise that fills out with some additional bells and whistles, what's already included in the open source version? Yeah, absolutely. That's this is how we survive, obviously. <laughs> you know, and it's true for all HashiCorp products, right? Basically, console enterprise, you know, enterprise specifically addresses a lot of the organizational complexities. Typically, that's around collaboration. How do you operate and at scale? And how do you govern all this? Um, and so that's really where enterprise adds a lot of value. Um, you know, if you think about scaling, you want to make sure it's resilient and you want to have multi-tenancy capabilities. Um, you know, pretty much every enterprise out there has, you know, a dev, test, prod, and then they have multiple different organizations. And so multi-tenancy is very important. And then simplifying your know, operations. And even if there are some customers that I run into have very complex architectures, um, that requires enterprise and, you know, and I've already mentioned governance and adding policy on top of all of this. Those are some really good places where console enterprise uh, can help. Okay. So if I'm starting to hit these limitations or need these additional things, console open source might not be cutting it for me anymore. So now it's time to look at the, at the paid enterprise version of console instead. Yes. 
So for example, if you wanted to fil uh, filter all your task triggers by namespace, right, for multi-tenancy, you can do that and consultize into Terraform Cloud and Terraform Enterprise. So you get all the audit logs, which is extremely important from a governance and security standpoint. Uh, you know, running history and, uh, you know, all the triggers and the notifications. Uh, let's say you want to notify an operations team that something happened or you made a change. Previously, it was all like Excel sheets and something else, right? So all of that is automated. Uh, you get the workspaces that you get from Terraform, uh, you know, remote execution. And the one other thing I'll mention is Sentinel for uh, enforcing governance, right? Policy as code. So those are some things that enterprises really cannot do away with. And so they really need those and console enterprise, uh, console Terraform Sync Enterprise can help there. Okay. And and Sentinel is probably something that we should do a whole separate tech bite on because it's a, <laughs> it's a pretty cool product. And I, I feel that it spans multiple enterprise products at HashiCorp, correct? Yes, primarily tied with Terraform Enterprise, but you can see that, uh, you know, with console Terraform Sync, it's able to leverage that automatically because of the tight integration. Right, right. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's close this one out. Let's uh, let's get some key takeaways for our listeners. Where can they go to find more information about console CTS or, or console enterprise? Yeah, absolutely. So just to round up, like, you know, one of our North Star goals is enabling our customers and console is a huge part of that. It's the only holistic solution for enterprise needs when it comes to service networking and network infrastructure automation is something that sets it apart. So overall, we really care about bringing business value to our customers, whether it's going, you know, increasing your, decreasing your time to market, make while your security governance is in place, reducing operational overhead, all of that network infrastructure automation through console can get you there. If folks want to learn more, they can go to our learn.hashicorp.com and simply search for NIA. I already mentioned the Terraform registry, same thing, search for NIA. Uh, we have plenty of blogs on our website as well. And, you know, there, there's a lot of information out there. Excellent. We'll include all of those links in the show notes, <laughs> as always. How can folks find you on the internet? Uh, do you have a blog, a Twitter profile, or, or something on LinkedIn? A blog is a work in progress, but the LinkedIn <laughs> is definitely uh, the best way to get in touch with me. And, uh, you know, my name should come up right away. Okay. And we'll include a link in the show notes for that as well. Well, Hari, thank you awesome. so much for joining us today on today's Tech Byte. And thank you to HashiCorp for sponsoring this Tech Byte. This is how Ethan and I feed our families after all. And thanks to you, dear listener, for tuning in. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. Till next time, remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. <laughs>